traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. For two days in November, the eyes of the world were on Indonesia. Leaders of the biggest economies converged in Bali for the G20 summit. The likes of Biden, Xi, Modi, Macron and Sunak walked the long red carpet to shake the hand of Indonesia's president, Joko Widodo, known to almost everyone as Jokowi. The country was firmly on the geopolitical map. Leaders, good morning. I hereby declare the G20 summit open. But away from the cameras, Jokowi's government is trying to convert Indonesia's fossil fuel-powered economy to run on batteries instead. And 700 miles from the choreographed display of the G20, the government in Jakarta is pursuing the most significant economic reforms in the country's modern history. In the past, Indonesia has been anonymous on the world stage. Now, the country is garnering global attention due to its stock of nickel and cobalt, core elements in the batteries needed for the booming electric vehicle industry. That also means disconnecting the economy from the environmentally dirty resource that it has traditionally relied upon, both for exports and for its own energy production. And they've been offered some help. Together, we hope to mobilize, mobilizing $20 billion to support Indonesia's efforts to reduce emissions and expand renewable energy and support workers in the most effective or most affected by the transition away from coal. But can Indonesia really become a greener, richer industrial powerhouse? You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Mike Bird. I'm Samaya Keynes. I'm Alice Fullwood. And in today's show, why we should all be paying more attention to Indonesia. We ask some of the most senior figures in Indonesia's government whether they can transform its economy. And what might derail Indonesia's lofty ambitions? First, we'll hear from President Jokowi himself. We are also still in the process of talking to Elon Musk with Tesla. Still process, but I believe Tesla will build a battery factory and car industry in Indonesia. Then we'll speak to the country's finance minister about the challenges Indonesia faces. We are exporting in the raw material. We don't have what we call it the industry, which is actually processing it. And finally, we'll learn what's being done about some of those challenges from the man in charge of education. The knee-jerk instinct in a lot of policymakers is to let's have everybody code from 
middle school to high school, and let's just focus all on STEM, 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 STEM. It's not that simple. So, Maya, Alice, hello. Hi, Mike. Welcome back. How was your holiday in Tokyo? Yeah, yeah, it was pretty good. I've been enjoying the the week yen, but honestly, it was a very bad week to miss podcast recording. And as fun as uh, newly reopened Japan is, I'd obviously have much rather been uh, here with you talking about the spectacular implosion of FTX. Yeah, I'd like to provide you some comfort, but you you did just really miss out. But wait, you didn't just travel to Tokyo, right? No, shortly before I left for Tokyo, I had been in Jakarta. Indonesia has obviously been in the news again this week after the earthquake on the island of Java. But I was there with our editor-in-chief, Zani Minton-Beddows, and our business affairs editor, Patrick Fowles, before that tragedy. We were in search of better news because the country is supposedly on the cusp of a green industrial revolution. And uh, is that what you found? Well, it's a little bit difficult to see at the moment. It's currently the world's third largest producer of coal, which generates more than 60% of the country's own electricity. Right now, I'd say it's fairly solidly in brown rather than green territory. But the government is hoping to turn that around and key to its plan is this idea of downstreaming. So it means not just mining raw materials and selling them abroad, but instead building the industries needed to turn them into the end product. And the one they're really focused on is batteries for electric vehicles. But you know the green transition isn't easy and it's just one of many challenges Indonesia faces. I thought we'd start by exploring these challenges with Patrick Fowles, who, as I mentioned, was with me in Indonesia. Patrick, hello. Have you recovered from returning to the shock of uh, cold, dark, rainy London? It's been brutal, but I'm getting through it. For those who haven't been following Indonesia's evolution from dictatorship to democracy over the last quarter of a century, it may be helpful first if you just outline the scale of the challenge facing Jokowi. Well, when Jokowi was elected in 2014, he inherited an economy with problems, um, wilting growth, a large current account deficit, and also infrastructure that was notably bad and and put off foreign investors. And, uh, you know, you've got to remember also that that Indonesia is a huge geographic challenge that 270 odd million people spread across thousands of islands, which just means the logistical challenges of of development are unusually steep. And at the same time, the country had de-industrialized quite a bit. So manufacturing is only about 20% of GDP, which is relatively low. And then finally, it had this huge problem of red tape and the World Bank's doing business report, which tries to measure this kind of thing, reckons that exporters faced 117 hours of checks and paperwork for each consignment of goods leaving the country. And that's way higher than, you know, Malaysia, Thailand and Vietnam, which do some manufacturing and even higher than India, which is notorious for its red tape. On top of that, you've got an economy whose energy system is based around coal, which is abundant in Indonesia. So take all of that. And it was a pretty steep challenge when he arrived in office. So big problems sometimes require big solutions. Give us an idea of the sort of scale of Jokowi's ambitions here. 
Well, I think over the last few years, you've seen the development of a big tech sector in Indonesia, which has plugged the country together more and, and created disruption and growth. But Jokowi's big play is in natural resources. And traditionally, Indonesia has been an exporter of raw materials and basic resources. Think of coal, think of palm oil. And what he wants to do is to try and drag Indonesia further up the value chain. And the big play really is in new green metals that are used in electric vehicles and batteries, particularly nickel. And the idea is to become a country that not just mines those resources, but actually manufactures the products that use them, such as batteries and car firms. So part of it involves schmoozing battery makers and even Elon Musk of, of Tesla. But alongside that, there's a bigger vision of, of renewing the infrastructure in Indonesia and also uh, reforming the education system and finally trying to address those problems of red tape. And really the signature reform of Jokowi is something known as the omnibus law that brings together reforms to labor markets and is designed to make investing and doing business in Indonesia easier. That law hasn't passed quite into reality yet. It's going through a constitutional process, but once it's implemented, will will be a really quite significant achievement. So taken holistically, there are really quite ambitious things that have happened and which Jokowi intends to happen. And having been there, what do you make of the sort of effort so far? How is this sort of program going? The picture to me is of a, a politician who's created enough of a consensus to pass incremental reforms that over time become quite meaningful and the improvement in infrastructure is striking. There's also a sense of discipline financially, so the budget and public finances are in pretty good shape and you can see foreign investment flows pick up strongly. On the other hand, there are still areas of concern and one is the presence of cronyism in Indonesia, which is a long-standing problem and whether that's really been dealt with. And there are elements of sort of vanity projects in the in the Jokowi agenda, including a plan to build a new capital city that I think raise some red flags. And finally, the big issue really is what happens when Jokowi's term runs out in 2024, who replaces him, whether he attempts to amend the constitution to stay in power. And whether or not there's continuity beyond 2024 is a thing that lots of companies and investors are worried about. So with that said, shall we hear from the man himself when he sat down with our boss, the Economist Editor-in-Chief, Zani Mintembedos, who is with us in Indonesia as well? I think we should. President Joko Widodo, thank you for joining me. Indonesia is obviously a very important economy, but one of the areas where it has real strength is its natural resources, and particularly the minerals necessary for powering the renewable energy. You have nickel, you will be the world's biggest nickel producer, you have cobalt, you have copper. Will you become the Saudi Arabia of green energy? Zani, di Indonesia, kita memiliki potensi besar untuk... In Indonesia, we have a great potential green for energy. green energy. We have a 4,400 rivers that can be used for hydropower. We have a 29,000 megawatts of geothermal potential. We also have a wind which can also be used for renewable energy. The potential for green energy in Indonesia is 400 
and 34,000 megawatts. Huge, but it takes investment. It takes technology. That's what Indonesia really needs. You have a lot of potential for renewable energy here in Indonesia, but you will be producing the components that are crucial for batteries, for electric vehicles, for everyone else. That will give you great geopolitical power in the future. Justru dengan Precisely by producing EV batteries, we produce electric cars. It will actually reduce the fossil energy that is always used in our driving. And yes, we want there to be great added value for this country. Immediately, so that this country can get more income, more taxes, more dividends, because Indonesia really need it, people need it. So you have been talking to Elon Musk. He is perhaps the most prominent person in the world in this area right now. Will he build a factory in Indonesia? Kita yang sudah mulai itu Hyundai sudah. We have started it, Hyundai already. Then there are automotive companies from China. Then we are still in communication with Ford, with BMW, with Volkswagen. But we are also still in the process of talking to Elon Musk with Tesla. Still process, but I believe Tesla will build a battery factory and car industry in Indonesia. I believe that because Indonesia has a large market and also a large market in association of Southeast Asian nations. I think it's an opportunity. You have been president now since 2014. You have two more years left. What are you most proud of achieving in Indonesia? Membangun fondasi Building the infrastructure foundation is important in the context of Indonesia's competitiveness. The second is industrial downstreaming. This will also provide great added value for this country because we have been exporting raw materials for decades. I think that's the most important. You're in the early stages of building a new capital city, Nusantara. First of all, can you explain to me why do you need a new capital city? This is an old idea, the idea since the first president of Indonesia to move the government capital. 58% of Indonesia population is in Java, so the burden of Java is already very heavy. The second is economic. In Java, about 57-58% of the economic GDP is in Java. Indonesia has 17,000 islands. Why is everyone concentrating on Java? Because the government is in Java. So we move the capital to Kalimantan. So the development can be evenly distributed and prosperity can be felt by all people. Sometimes new capital cities are a success. Often they are not. They are empty, no one goes there. What will ensure that this is a success? Karena 80% because 80% of this will depend on investment, not from the national budget. What can bring the capital to life later is investment. We estimate that in the next 10 years, there will be approximately 2 million population. I will come back and check. I have one last question. You are the, the first president of Indonesia who does not come from the country's political or military elite. You ran a furniture factory, your family was in the wood business. So your rise was a major landmark in 
Indonesia's young democracy. Do you think when you leave in two years that you will leave a more meritocratic Indonesia behind you? Yes, we hope so. There is a change in mindset. There is a change in the new way of working. So it is true that this country will be able to live forward, to move forward. You will definitely leave in 2024. That will be the end of your term. I will return to my city, Solo as a commoner. And when you are back in Solo, what will you be doing? I will be active in the environmental field. President Ricardo, thank you so much. Sunny, thank you. So, Alice Samea, that is the high-level view. Transform the economy from one that mines and sells natural resources to one that turns its cobalt and copper and nickel into batteries for electric cars. After the break, we'll hear from some of the people in charge of putting that policy into practice. But first, it is the time in the show where we ask you to take out a subscription to The Economist. That will get you access to Mike's great reporting from Indonesia, as well as fresh analysis of all the drama going on at Disney. Listeners can get a great introductory offer at economist.com slash podcast offer. And if you're already a subscriber, thank you. You should check out our newsletters like Money Talks and The Bottom Line. I can also recommend Blighty, our new Britain newsletter, which this week explained the country's rental crisis. And don't forget to check out Drum Tower, our new weekly podcast, which focuses on China, featuring our Beijing bureau chief, David Rennie, and China correspondent, Alice Su. You can find Drum Tower wherever you get your podcasts. As usual, all of those links are in the notes to this episode. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So we've heard the vision for Indonesia, but I wanted to know how the government intends to make that a reality. Because what Jokowi is talking about has never really been done before. He wants Indonesia to give up one of its largest exports and instead produce items that in many ways it is ill-equipped to make, like electric car batteries. I wanted to understand his plans to overhaul the economy, so I spoke to the country's finance minister. Sri Mulyani, thank you very much for making the time. The first point we wanted to talk about was that there's been a very large increase in foreign direct investment, especially in the last two or three quarters. That's obviously linked partly to the squeeze on commodities globally, but also to this new interest in nickel and cobalt. How does Indonesia see that progressing going forward? We are transforming the economy in a much more accelerated way 
it actually requires a very difficult decision because Indonesia known as a natural resource-rich country, but even after 77 years of independence, not much of the value-added creation is actually happened in the country. If you look at the Indonesia composition of the production side, we are exporting in a raw material. We don't have the industry which actually processing it, but we do consuming quite a lot of the downstream product, electronic, car, and if you talk about so many consumer products in Indonesia. So we become the market, but we are not also producing. Of course, then do we provide the investment climate, which is actually fit with this kind of industrialization process? Right. And the big thing you've done to address that is the omnibus law, which is currently going back through parliament again. And it's intended to make doing business in Indonesia much easier, especially for foreign investors. This is more than 70 legislation from labor, environment, easy of uh, having the permit related to easy of doing business in Indonesia. Even we are establishing sovereign wealth fund in which we are going to attract more capital, not in the form of borrowing, but in terms of the equity financing. So it's a huge and comprehensive reform that we are undertaken through this omnibus law. And at the same time, we also sometimes have to adopt a more controversial and quite harsh policy like stopping the export of the raw material. So it is quite a transformation of the economy, which President Jokowi outlined and sometimes have to take in the form of policy, which is radically different from the past. Okay. And one of the major trends of the last 20 years or so is Indonesia's manufacturing share of GDP declining. Why is that? And do you have an ambition to turn that around? The problem for us is that we don't have adequate what you call it, the middle as well as the upstream manufacturing. So yes, as you said, manufacturing hopefully is going to be reversed in terms of the share to GDP, although there is also one caveat with that. The nature of the consumption, which is shifting more on services sector. I think there is a quite change of the behavior from the activity which is in the past really based on consuming manufacturing product in this case buying clothes shoes all those things now it's becoming more services sector we call it the millennial generation the younger generation which is more experience based rather than consuming something Finally, the pace of change from existing commodities that Indonesia has a lot of, especially coal, is presumably going to cause some sort of economic disruption. What are your goals to make that sort of stuff easier without disrupting this goal of higher economic growth? We are among the biggest producers of coal, and of course 60% of our electricity is still based on coal. But at the same time, Indonesia has been very, very forceful in many international fora, we also understand that climate change is going to be a challenge which cannot be avoided. The increasing the sea level is going to be continue or even more accelerated, and that's going to have a huge implication for Indonesia. So we know that this is going to be a risk that needs to be addressed sooner than later. So that's why Indonesia, it's not only talking about energy transition in the form of retiring coal earlier and changing into renewable, but we look at the whole policy framework 
on uh, electricity and energy, substituting more fossil fuel into more electric vehicle car, in which the supply of electricity will be more coming from renewable. That will require retiring coal, which is, I think, is going to be very costly, as well as building the new renewable. Srimulyani, thank you very much for joining us on Money Talks. Thank you, Mike. So Indonesia is a country that has struggled historically to catch much of the value added in the things that it sells abroad and has not always had a very inviting approach to foreign investors either. The government clearly wants to change those two things. But the other big barrier right now to Jokowi's master plan is that Indonesia just doesn't have enough people qualified to do the sort of jobs that the country wants them to do. To fix that problem, Jokowi has made a pretty fascinating appointment for education minister. He hired Nadim Makarim, the founder of tech startup Gojek, which is a ride-hailing app. It became Indonesia's first unicorn and is now one of the country's largest listed stocks. He's been education minister since 2019, and he's been trying to put his mark on Indonesia's education system. Nadim, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me here. You came into office in 2019. What was the sort of state of the education system then? What were the challenges that you really wanted to address? I think there were many, many challenges. Unlike other sectors, I think education is one that is a multivariable problem with no silver bullets. So we suffered from all problems of emerging economies, except the infrastructural problems were even more acute. We're the largest archipelago in the world, multi-ethnicity. We have areas of Indonesia that have yet to be connected to the internet. The biggest problem of all was the quality of teachers, lack of flexibility in the curriculum itself, the relevancy of what was actually being taught in the schools. And also, we were really not focusing on the actual skills that are required in the future or competencies, and instead really focusing on information mastery, as opposed to what can you do with that information. And for higher education, it was the same. So we had to do even more extreme changes in in higher education, because that had immediate impact on, on the economy. So you name it, everything was a challenge. So we've been looking particularly at the consumer tech industry, which really boomed, and the opportunities in battery production and the electric vehicle supply chain. Those are areas that are going to require a lot of technical skills, a lot of engineers. Those specific sort of employment routes and skills, what is happening in Indonesia to make sure that the workforce is skilled to take those roles? I think the knee-jerk instinct in a lot of policymakers is to let's have everybody code from middle school to high school and let's just focus all on STEM, 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 STEM. It's not that simple. What I believe you want in order to build that kind of talent pool is to ensure that the educational system itself focuses on critical thinking and problem solving. So far, we've been measuring previously using a national exam that's based on subject-based tests. So that's based on either rote memorization or based on subject mastery, information mastery. This is not actually testing what we really want, which is actually numeracy, literacy, the ability to actually logically reason using information and using numbers. So we changed it. We scrapped the entire national exam and we replaced it with an assessment, a national assessment that focused on numeracy, literacy, 
and character surveys. And what about in higher education? So we have created a policy called Campus Merdeka, Emancipated Campus, whereby we gave the right to university students in their undergraduate education to take two semesters out of their eight semesters in undergraduate to study off campus. And we have gone and certified programs in all kinds of industries, including technology industries, whether it is data science, whether it's Android programming, machine learning, all of these skill sets that are available in the private sector for a full immersive semester. So right now, we have about 400,000 students that have left campus in the past two, two and a half years to do all kinds of projects. And specifically to your question, a lot of these programs off campus are geared towards technology training. So in other countries wherein the effort is focused on building the most world-class institutions for technology, we have decided to take a faster route that we believe that it's very, very difficult to catch up with how quickly the technology is moving. Obviously, these have been big priorities under President Jokowi, who will be in office until 2024. Do you think this sort of change in thinking is embedded well beyond that? It's something that has changed for Indonesia, not just under the current government? I think so. I think a lot of these changes will continue on, even as we have a new president, because ultimately it is what the beneficiaries of these programs think about, right? Right now we have an entire cohort of university graduates who are educated not just in university, but within corporations, within industries. I believe that the sustainability of this program will be the younger cohorts demanding that they have the same rights to do this. So it's going to be quite hard to reverse some of these changes. Nadim, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Now I'm back with Patrick Fowles, our business affairs editor. Patrick, I wanted to come back to you to see what you make of what we've heard from Indonesia's president, finance minister and education minister, because this approach to development is something that hasn't really been tried all that much before. That's right. Well, Jokowi wants to shift the economy from the mining of natural resources to higher value-added manufacturing. Uh, And we're not just talking um, bits of metal being welded together. Sometimes this is really relatively high-tech stuff. But it is a a chicken-and-egg question. You know, can you persuade some of the world's biggest companies to invest billions of dollars in production and plants in Indonesia? And part of that's about red tape, certainty of the investment climate, but it's also about whether or not the labour pool is there. Are there enough talented and skilled workers? And a large part of Nadia Makarim's strategy involves trying to get companies to participate more in developing worker skills. So there's a bit of a running joke at The Economist when we cover Indonesia um, because of our appearance on The Simpsons several years ago in which Homer Simpson is reading a copy of the paper and it's headlined Indonesia's Gambit and he's noting that Indonesia is at a crossroads. I think that speaks to something a little bit more serious as well, which is that Indonesia is one of the countries, perhaps like Brazil, perhaps like India, which always look to some extent like the countries of the future and they never seem to quite get there. What do you think the biggest obstacle is to this more positive vision that we're looking at at the moment being realised? 
In politics, it's that there's a reasonable degree of political continuity after 2024 when Jokowi's term ends. In the economy, it's that this experiment with what the Indonesians call downstreaming works. And in essence, it's industries where Indonesia has leverage, nickel, where it has huge power because of its reserves. It can try and force companies to invest more locally. But whether that works across the economy is a lot more questionable. So in other sectors where Indonesia doesn't have such leverage, it might actually put off companies who fear that their freedom for manoeuvre will be compromised. And you know, there hasn't been, for example, a big movement of Apple supply chain into Indonesia, even as uh, other countries, including Vietnam and, and India, benefit from the shift from China. So I think if Indonesia pushes too hard on this new form of resource nationalism, it could ultimately find it backfires and, and puts off foreign investment, impeding growth in the long run. Patrick, thank you very much for joining us. And I hope you're not too jet lagged, having just returned. We'll see. Thanks, Mike. So, Alice Samea, you've heard the sales pitch, but do you buy the plan that the Indonesian government is selling? Yeah, I mean, call me cautious. I think they're certainly saying all the right things, right? Building up your value chains, investing in education, welcoming international investments. Um, You know, it seems to be designed to please uh, editors at The Economist. I guess the thing I would say, though, is that this is a really hard process that they're trying to get done. Jokowi's been in power since 2014. That's already quite a bit of time. Some of these ambitions are not new. Um, you know, moving downstream, building up those value chains, that's that's not a fresh objective. So I suppose if they're still saying, hey, look, we, we really want to do this, then that suggests something about how difficult it is. I mean, one advantage Indonesia does have is its enormous domestic market, you know, fourth most populous country in the world not to be sniffed at. But there does seem to be this sort of chicken and egg problem in another way to to the one that you and Patrick mentioned, which is that, you know, those consumers need to be rich enough to afford the sophisticated products that Indonesia wants to develop. That's a bit of a constraint. Yeah, I guess we're maybe playing our sort of typical roles. If uh, Sumer is being cautious, then then I'll be her optimistic foil. As I've mentioned probably far too many times before, I used to live in Singapore and sort of think about Indonesia. It was, I actually moved there in 2014, sort of at the same time as Jokowi came to power. And one of the really sort of nice things actually about reading Mike's sort of excellent briefing that went with our Indonesia cover last week was actually how much they've managed to pull off already. You know, when Jokowi came to power, he inherited this sort of terrible current account deficit, a huge fiscal deficit, this sort of resource dependency. And, you know, in the intervening eight years or so, he's run the economy sort of extremely competently. And Indonesia has become this sort of surprising uh, powerhouse of its own in in terms of some of the consumer tech apps that have been founded and and taken off there. So I take Samir's point that these priorities are kind of things that they they did talk about back in 2014 and the idea that they haven't managed to pull them off yet and they maybe Jokowi only has sort of a year or two left. Um, that is a sort of big hurdle. But I think they've sort of earned enough credibility to think that, you know, when they say that they want to do these things, that actually they have delivered on them in the past. And so there's reason to believe that they, they might be able to pull something like this off again. Yeah, I think I, I've gone back and forth on this over and over again over the last sort of couple of months, a time in which I've been thinking about this coverage, a part of me thinks that reform programs in emerging markets of this sort are are almost a creature of the past. You really don't see them that much anymore. You know, a concerted effort to 
make an economy more inviting to foreign investors is, is just something that it feels very sort of pre-2008, very mid-noughties or even very 1990s. And so that to me is to be praised. And then you look at the natural resources and you think we're only in the foothills of the uh, electric vehicle boom, really. Um, you know, there's, there's hundreds of millions of these vehicles to be built. And Indonesia has such a strong starting point that it's hard to see them failing at this just because the rest of the world is going to need that nickel in particular so much. But having covered Indonesia pretty well there, I think we should pivot to our statistics of the week. Yes, we should. My stat of the week is 7%, which is a very gloomy stat from uh, the UK. I really like how I've got this role as the, the gloomster of the group. That is the fall in real household disposable income forecast by the OBR over a two-year period starting from this year. That's the Office for Budget Responsibility, which is a kind of independent fiscal watchdog. That is the biggest drop in essentially living standards since records began. It's going to take the measure back to its lowest since 2013-14. That's a pretty unhappy place for Britons to be in. Yes, well, well, yet again, um, I guess I'll be a sort of more cheerful foil to Sumeya's abject misery. I've gone for a holiday-themed stat uh, because it is Thanksgiving in the US, so all Americans are sort of returning home to uh, eat a lot of turkey and uh, stuffing and also cranberry sauce with their families. And my stat of the week this week is 70%, which is the share of cranberries that are produced by a single uh, business in the US, which is Ocean Spray. So uh, we're sort of blowing the lid on big cranberry here, but apparently they're exempt from antitrust laws because they're an agricultural cooperative and certain agricultural businesses have been exempt from antitrust law since, you know, the early 20th century. So uh, Big Granbury, it's very dominant in the US. Well, I think we have what is potentially a first time ever thing on Money Talks, which is my statistic is upbeat as well. So that's two upbeat-ish statistics or not miserable statistics. Hang on, the kind of... Lack of competition in the cranberry market is surely a very, very depressing statistic. I mean, listen, never. I, I would say never reason from a market share. For all I know, these guys are just—they've cracked cranberries, and I don't want to. I don't want to. You know, I don't want to run them into the ground for that if that's true. But my stat this week uh, is another positive one, which is that the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, has upgraded Japan's GDP growth forecast from 1.4% next year to 1.8%. And while I don't want to toot my own horn, I think I might have ignited some animal spirits by being here and spending just an absolutely enormous amount of money at the Uniqlo in Ginza. That's probably it. Again, I don't want to say for sure, but I'm, I'm sort of 90% sure. That is cracking economic analysis there. Thank you. For one of the, the economics team, this means a huge amount. Um, our thanks this week go to President Joko Widodo, Sri Mulyani and Nadim Makarim. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And you can always write to us at podcasts at economist.com. Today's show was produced by Dan Asher and Marie Keyworth. Our sound engineer is Nico Raufast. And the executive producer is Hannah Marino. I'm Mike Bird. I'm Alice Fulwood. I'm Samaya Keynes. And this is The Economist.
traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.